Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. If you turn on cable news lately, you might have noticed it's become a little less Walter Cronkite and a little more WWE, with mega personalities, screaming matches, and the occasional knockout. I'm not just talking about Fox News, though that is certainly the worst of the bunch and notably has been the most watched network for nearly 20 years. Thanks, Mom. But I'm also talking about networks like CNN. The network ever so briefly beat out Fox News viewership between Election Day and Biden's inauguration. It was an impressive feat, especially given CNN's dismal ratings back in 2014. So what explains the turn? Well, definitely the impact of Donald Trump and maybe a more sensationalist approach to presenting the news now. My guest today is Don Lemon. He's the host of the hit primetime show, CNN Tonight. The hour has been dubbed Therapy for Trump Haters. That might sound good, but it's really not as great as it may seem. In this era, Lemon has become well-known for his frequent rants about the former president. Memorably, he called Trump a racist and, quote, a loser. On these points, Don Lemon and I agree. But I wanted Lemon's take on why cable news has gotten so emotional and how he squares his commentary with the objectives of, well, objective journalism. I also wanted to talk about his new book titled, This is the Fire, what I say to my friends about racism. Don Lemon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's so good to be on. And congratulations on your engagement, by the way. Thank you very much. When are you getting married? After COVID. Everyone asks, mm-hmm. when it, when's a wedding day? I don't know. I know so many people, Kara, who plan their weddings during COVID, and they kept pushing it back and pushing it back. And then we just decided, I don't want to do that. I think maybe I'll have a party or celebration, but I want people to be able to gather safely. I'm assuming that Chris Cuomo is invited, right? Um, maybe. Oh, I'm not wow. sure. Maybe. No, I don't know if I, I really don't know who I'm going to invite. I'm sure I'm going to invite loved ones, but it may just be family and friends. My family doesn't live here. So that was part of the, the equation. It's tough to get people on a plane when you're not supposed to travel and that kind of thing. Right. So your journey has been really interesting to watch because back in 2013, you went uh, viral for a moment when you defended Bill O'Reilly for some comments he made about black people. Uh, In fact, you said he didn't go far enough. Because black people, if you really want to fix the problem, here's just five things that you should think about doing. Here's number five. Pull up your pants. Number four now is the N-word. Respect where you live, finish school. And number one, and probably the most important, just because you can have a baby, it doesn't mean you should. Do you regret those statements? Um, No, I don't regret anything that I've said when it comes to that. I, I, I think that those things may have been misconstrued. Okay. As I talked to my mother, who was a young mother, she had a baby at 16 years old mm-hmm. um, and then had another baby at 18 years old. And then... um divorced and was a single mom for a long time, she will say, I wish I had, you guys had more of a, um, of a traditional family 
sort of upbringing with with mom and dad in the home traditionally. Mm -hmm. So I think, listen, where you find love, especially as a gay person, I would love to uh, have kids one day, whether it's through surrogacy or adoption, but I'm going to plan for those kids and I'm Mm going to make sure that those kids are priority. And so I don't think that that is a bad thing to tell people to, you know, to have respect in yourself and how you look. Those are, I don't see anything bad about that. I don't know why people would think that. It reminded me, you remember when Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook wrote Lean In, a lot of, everyone was like, the onus is on women versus the, the system. But I, I tell you what I've learned from that. I've evolved from that. Not that I regret it, but I, nowadays, I, I think that I'm a better communicator. Mm-hmm. What's been interesting to me to watch, in the past few years, you've become an outspoken on racism and particularly well-known for calling out racism in the Trump administration. You did it quite memorably in a 2018 show open. I remember watching it shortly after it was reported that Trump referred to Haiti, El Salvador, and African nations as shithole countries. This is CNN Tonight. I'm Don Lemon. The president of the United States is racist. A lot of us already knew that. So talk to me about why oh. you decided to open the show. I know, right? I remember being, whoa, whoa, Don. <laughs> what happened to the bro talk with Cuomo? What, what the heck? I, all I can hear is that, my gosh, I had a cold. Can you hear yeah. it in my no, voice? No, I can't. You I can't. can hear it. I was like, <laughs> okay. I had a cold. Okay, anger monster. Like okay. This. No, um, what, what was I thinking? What, yeah, that was a choice. I'm sure there was many meetings uh, inside of CNN. What, what were you thinking with that one? Not as many as you think. No. Okay. Um, no, because um, listen, I have more editorial freedom, I think, than um, than any person at the network. Given one, given the time that I'm uh, on, and two, the issues that I cover, and three, because of who I am, mm-hmm. I feel that I have the authority to be able to speak on the on these issues. And so, um, I just sat down. We just with the producers, and I said, we went through this whole thing about, you know, the president is a liar, and people would say, oh, he, you know, he is. Uh, shading the truth, and you know all of the whole things where you, where you call everything a lie, everything but a lie. Yeah, euphemisms. Yes, and so, so finally one day I said the whole thing. I said he's lying, and it was tough to say. But then once I said it, it was it was okay. I kept you know it was it became easier to say, and and I realized you know I, you can't just use as you say euphemisms. You gotta you gotta call it out. So it was just the I said God, this guy is so racist. And, and I said, why don't we just say it? And they were like, well, you know, is that an opinion? I said, no, it's not. And so let's say it and then give the proof. Before I said that he was, what was the term that I used? He wasn't racist, but racist adjacent or something like that. Yeah, and, yeah. you know. So you had been slowly edging up this, to that. Yeah, this guy's a racist, sorry. And then right. every, and then I could see like the, the camera people, if you look at me, Kara, the camera people were like at the camera and they were like, <laughs> Don is going around the camera right now. Looking at me and they're like, oh my gosh, this yeah. guy is crazy. But yeah. What did it feel like to do that finally? Because, you know, people after the Bill of Rights, I think people could critique you for coming out late to call it racism, but then you just went right into it. Well, I, I think, look, I think I was calling it what it is, but I just wasn't saying racist, right? And you're right. So that was on me. And I probably should have said it sooner, but I did it when I did it. Which now everybody does. Everybody. But I got to tell you, Kara, I've felt liberated for a long time. That's part of my mission is to tell the truth for all people, and especially people who look like me. And so if I'm not doing that, I can't sleep at night. Yep. Yep. No, it's, it is. It is. I think. I, and I sleep very well at night, by the way. I fell off the bed. I was like, whoa. I kept thinking, oh, my God, the meeting for this is going to be interesting the next day. Well, I know the right went crazy, but I do have to tell you, um, 
I have a lot of support from the big guy. Jeff Zucker. Yeah. And if I if I go too far or whatever, then we'll talk about it. But that was not a too far moment. I think I get there was more pushback when I said that the biggest terror threat in the United States were white men radicalized to the right, mm-hmm. which the FBI had been saying and everyone, but for an anchor to say it on television, all of a sudden I was a racist. And I was like, I'm just quoting FBI statistics. Like, what are you talking about? You also wrote in the book, uh, silence is no longer an option. It's not. I'm not sure it ever was an option for you, Don. But okay. <laughs> okay. I, I want to understand this relationship between Trump and CNN. Uh, he spent a lot of uh, time berating the network. Uh, once called you the dumbest man on television. Uh, but you say that Trump loves CNN. I think he does. Um, what did you mean by that? So CNN is an iconic brand, right? Much more than Fox News. I and mean, people are like Fox News or whatever. CNN is CNN. It's like Coca-Cola. Um, so he loves that. Like he is, he wants to be part of celebrity. And for him, being on CNN and having his name mentioned on CNN is, you know, it's part of his celebrity brand that he loves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he he tells the people who are his big supporters who are, you know, feel like, you know, oh, you know, CNN's the elite, the elite. Mm-hmm. He wants nothing more than to be part of the elite. Right. Yeah. So, but, but what is CNN's responsibility in that? Now, you don't run the network, Jeff Zucker does, but he, Apprentice was greenlit by Jeff, by the way, current president of CNN. The network gave a ton of airtime. And this is, Jeff and I have talked about this, this issue. But how do you look at that? Um, the, the idea of the, not just CNN, but all these cable networks sort of pushing Trump out there as an entertainer, uh, as entertainment and then it morphing into what happened. Well, I think Jeff has said that he would have done things differently. And then he he also, we did things differently um, for 2020. I want to know how you look at it, though. Um, Do you think CNN had some culpability in in not taking this seriously or or using his too much to help uh, ratings? CNN's average primetime viewership more than tripled by 2020. Well, so I don't know if it's if not taking him seriously, but I do think that you said just CNN have some culpability, yes. And I think all news networks did. I don't think the networks realized the assault on truth and reality that Trump was going to have. And if we did, we probably would not have put his um, rallies live on TV unchecked. Right, and just let him speak and spew his lies and garbage out there. Um, but I do do I think that I think we started to catch on. Now, individually, journalists of color, especially, were on to him from the beginning. Black people knew Donald Trump was racist from the very beginning. I did. There were people who I wouldn't have on the show because they were spewing racist garbage. And quite honestly, uh, Kellyanne Conway was one of them. And Stephen Miller and all of those people, I stopped having them on because they would only come on television to tell lies. Honestly, as far as a larger journal, like journalist beyond journalists of color who would sit around and say, why are we giving this racist guy so much room and so much air? I don't really know. You'd have to ask a network executive that and you'd have to ask. But I want to know how you think about it because I get the argument of not giving Trump a platform, but at the same time, he was the president. This is the same thing they struggle with at Twitter and Facebook. The idea of, well, he was the president. I don't believe in false equivalence, though. Okay, so tell me about that. I don't believe in, I don't believe just because, you know, um, you have, I don't like giving false equivalence to lies. And I think that was the whole idea of what the Trump administration or the, even the yes. Trump campaign was about, is that, you know, if you, if you have, the, I'm just going back to 2016, if you had something on that had to deal with Hillary Clinton, then, and then necessarily you'd have to have something on for Donald Trump. But when Donald Trump was 
was spewing a lie or someone that was coming on for Donald Trump was lying to people or was promoting hatred and bigotry and racism and sexism, do you have to give that a platform? I don't think so. It's not a right to be on CNN. And that's not censorship not to have someone on CNN. It's a privilege to be able to speak directly to the American people. And if you have that privilege, then you have an obligation, I believe, to tell the truth. And so I don't believe that in giving equal weight to someone who's coming on and then has, you know, um, an underlying objective or mission that is not necessarily good. So how did you look at what Twitter and other things were doing with him? Because they, that was a long, painful process until they finally kicked him off after multiple violations. I couldn't believe that he wasn't kicked off earlier. And I can't believe, you know, some of the awful things that people say on Twitter and are allowed to do. Look, I don't believe in censorship, but, you know, you'll, uh, you know, I'll report something to Twitter and they'll say, oh, we didn't see any reason to take this down. Now, there is a picture of me and Chris Cuomo that's on Twitter. And people continue to spread it. Someone has Photoshopped Jeffrey Epstein's face on it. Okay. And Chris and I are hugging like friends, right? And they'll spread around, Don Lemon doesn't want anybody to see this. Don Lemon is a pedophile. He's hanging out with a pedophile. He's hanging out with this. He's hanging out with that. And they continue to spread this picture on Twitter. And that's just one example. And so I I think, listen, good for Twitter now, but Twitter should have done this four or five years ago, Mm -hmm. if not more, when Donald Trump was spreading lies and then called, because their standard for Donald Trump was different. And I think, this is just Don speaking, it was because Donald Trump was keeping Twitter afloat that they allowed that to happen because he was bringing attention to Twitter. Right. So in that vein, one of the things you wrote in the book, you said that Donald Trump was the president the country needed. Uh, do you feel like he was president that also Cable needed? And these- I said there was a president we deserved. Deserved, but, that's right. I'm but sorry. But probably the president we needed because now we see who the, the racists are. Now we see the bigots. They're out in the open. They're out in the open. And we thought, you know, we knew it was there. Everybody knew it was there. And again, especially, I hate to keep going back to this, but it's the truth, especially black people. We knew it was there because we're closer to the, we're closer to it. Mm-hmm. But it was lurking beneath, just beneath the surface where most people didn't realize how close to the surface it was. And now it's not even, it's there. And now we see you and, oh, you're a grade A freaking racist fucker. You're, you're a, and right out in the open, you don't, you don't need a, um, a sheet. You're in khakis and a, and a polo shirt. Or you're in a business suit in the office. Part of me feels like leaving them in the shadows is not the worst idea because getting out gives power, especially with the internet and cable constantly regurgitating on itself. Kara, knowing who they are does not mean giving them a platform. Okay. All right. So because because we know who they are doesn't mean that you have to put them on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News. But did that give them news? I mean, I want to get to this idea of it, it feels more like entertainment than news. And sometimes it does, both on Twitter and cable and the rest as they as they circle each other. Is that helpful to people? And is the emotionality helpful? The Times' media columnist Ben Smith called the network's coverage, quote, amped up outrage and righteousness. Let me play a clip from your show shortly after one of the White House uh, coronavirus task force briefings, which were appalling and everything uh, from last April. But here's the thing. The fact is that Christy Grimm was appointed to her post in January of this year. Who's the president this year? This year, this year, the president this year. That's President Trump. So even this fact challenged president should be able to remember who was president a few months ago. It was him. Spoiler alert, the president is Trump. It was you. Is this good or not? How do you look at this? I mean, look, Sean Hannity goes off on some crazy scheme every night. 
Um, I, I, I don't know what the context of that is, but yeah, I think it's good. Okay, tell me why. Well, I mean, I think it's good to point out facts, and I think it's good to point out facts, and you can do it with emotion. Otherwise, you're reading a newspaper. And I think that there are people who tune in to me because it's me and they want to hear. It's you. It's you doing this. It's it's me, but it's not, it's not like I'm sitting. It's not like I'm I'm, I'm uh, giving some misinformation. Right. I'm a cable. New, I know my role. I'm a cable news host. Right. And and every day in cable news is like a knife fight. Right. You've got to sort of break through. And I'm, I'm not. Yeah. That's yeah. That's just think it's like a. I'm just making it. You know, from the anchorman thing. Yeah. Got it. But you have to, sometimes you have to break through. And that doesn't mean that I have to be bombastic. But I think people want to hear from the host that they've invested in. And it's okay if, I, if, if it's me pointing out the obvious when it is so ridiculous. But do you think that cable needs to bring on more reporters again rather than analysts and commentators? Um, and that that's good for the American information diet, which I think has gotten really bad, the information diet. Yes, I do. I do think that we should bring on more reporters, more experts, more fact checkers. Yes, yes, yes. But I also, I do think you have to realize that there's a place for it. Primetime cable news is different than dayside cable news or even early prime, even seven o'clock. 10 o'clock at night is even different than Anderson at eight or right. even Chris at nine. At 10 o'clock, I have way more leeway. So um, you have to understand your audience and the time of day. So I figure when I'm on, Yes, people want the news, but they I think people want the news in a different way. They've already absorbed it. With a point of view. With a point of view. They've already seen Lester. They've already seen Nora and Aaron and what have you. And so they want to sit down and they want to say, well, what is this about, Don? What is this about? How do you feel about that? Through your lens. Yes. You get it. You're smart. Thank you. <laughs> Some people think I am. So, so the purpose of primetime cable news of your show one, one, well, someone called it therapy for Trump haters, for example. Yeah. Other people call it different. What do you see it as and what do you see it going forward? I do see it as therapy for Trump haters. But I also, again, the difference between me and I think other people is that I tell the truth. But I do it through emotion and I may, you know, I have a bit more animated. I think Rachel is more righteous. This but also Rachel think, Maddow. Rachel Maddow, who's also an intellectual and like way, she has way more brain cells than I ever had in my life. She's lost more than I've ever had. Um, I think that she's more um, therapy for Trump haters because of how she gets into it and just because she's just way smarter than me. But I think for me, it's just people who are watching going, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Someone who actually says it like it is. Says it like it is. Sounds like someone we know, Donald Trump. Yeah. But the real thing that I think people don't get, Kara, is that I, what I'm saying is, if I don't say it, who else will? All right. So speaking of objective coverage, I want to get back to that, the, the bromance with Chris Cuomo. He's gotten a lot of heat lately, how he recused himself on covering the brothers' scandals. I don't think he could do anything else, actually. Um, uh, but he was on the show a lot. The governor was on the show a lot um, when he was in the limelight around COVID. Um, CNN is back, Chris, on this. How do you look at this? And any predictions what happens to Andrew Cuomo now? Oh, so, so the first part, how do I look at this? Um, I look at it is, I, it, it would be tough for anybody for, especially if it's your brother, right? Mm -hmm. it's, if it's a loved one to, to see them going through something like this, regardless of what it is. Um, Chris has told me how he felt about it, um, that it's tough for him, um, that he's sure his brother 
is, um, how do I say this? That he may not have done everything right, but he doesn't necessarily deserve what he's going through. And that is uh, a lot of it is, if not most of it, is politically driven, motivated. Um, but Chris is the governor's brother. He's not the governor. And so I care about Chris on a personal level. I don't really know Andrew. I think I've met Andrew twice, maybe. So do how do I look at it? I have to cover it. Uh, it was not uncomfortable to cover it because I know deep down Chris has been a journalist for almost as long as I have, and he realizes that we have to do it. Um, I wonder how he feels about it with us having to cover it, but it doesn't make me uncomfortable. Does right. that make sense? And you, Yes, it does. Yeah. Do you back Chris in his decision not to cover Andrew, although he covered him before and brought him I on do. as entertainment? I do. And listen, I think in the moment, um, you know, I think I can, this is just me imagining. I sure. think he probably thought that I can get information from my brother that no one else could, but I'm not, I, there was a policy that he would not cover his brother. So it was a governor. From, from and I thought on. that was, I thought that was a good policy before. I think before COVID, he didn't cover his brother. Right. And I don't know what changed during COVID, but I think that was a good policy. Okay. So um, that's how I feel about that. Now, with Andrew Cuomo, I actually think that he can survive it because I think they're quite honestly there. If you look at the polling, there are more people out there who support him than who don't support him. It's almost Trumpian. It's almost Trumpian. And I also think in this day and age, people are concerned about accusations that can just ruin people for accusations. Um, I think people just let it play out. And see what happens. I think that his term is almost up. And by the time that this would wind its way through the courts, if it ever made it to the courts, I haven't seen anything yet that would make it to, through a court. He hasn't been really, he hasn't been charged of anything, um, right? That yep. That is court related. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think he'll brazen it out. Now, do I think he should run again? No. Do I think he could run again and win? I do, Kara. Mm -hmm. Yep, me too. Isn't that amazing? No, it, no, it's not. No, not after Trump. Because people... You can brazen and shameless things out. You can do and, that. And if you, hear, if you listen to people, people say, it's just like the Trump people. They'll say one thing in the green room. Mm -hmm. And then once you get them on TV, they say a completely different thing. It's the same thing you're right with Andrew Cuomo. They say one thing on television or one thing publicly or with a group of people. And then when you're with them one-on-one, -on -one, they'll say, look, I, the guy is, I don't see where he did anything. That was that bad. Yeah. I want to talk about CNN and the future of the network and cable in general, because I've had Jason Kyler uh, on the head of Warner. So your boss's boss. And he talked about yeah. making, making. He's my boss. Making nice CNN. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, he is. Uh, very handsome, by the way. He's a very handsome man. That's weird. <laughs> That's going to be weird. <laughs> said a sorry, very Jason. handsome man about another very handsome man. Um, I, I don't. I, don't. I, said, I said, who is, I said, this is our new boss. Hmm, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Let's move along. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out <laughs> of a jam here. It's going to get me here. in trouble. <laughs> it is, indeed. I'm going to move you out of a jam before you move along further. All right. Um, there, there are a number of threats to business. He and I talked about it a lot. Declining ratings, changing of the guard, diversity challenges. So now that Trump's out of the White House, cable news viewership all over has been down. Fox is particularly primetime viewership, 32% from the last quarter. CNN has done better, still lost 16% of primetime viewers. So are you worried about, uh, Trump always said, I'm good for cable. And so with cable, people who run cable, are you worried about the viewership fizzle? So what does it mean you have to do now? No, I'm not worried about it. Okay. And I just keep doing what I do. Um, and I've always been... Um, nimble and malleable and whatever comes next, I'll be ready for it. <clears throat> and the reason I'm not worried about it is because it beats the alternative. 
the alternative of him being in there and us having to figure out how we deal with lies and bigotry and hate and the toxicity that was the Trump administration, and which has nothing for me to do with my ideology or politics, right? Because people have accused me of being conservative. Um, I, it has nothing to do with politics. Trump was a horrible person and he was terrible for the country. And it is better for all for the world that he is no longer the president of the United States. And so if that means that cable news ratings go down, aw. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not really that concerned about it. And um, I think it's, it's better. I would prefer that my ratings go down and Trump not be in office and my ratings be sky high and him be there. That's the honest truth. So uh, there's a change of foot too. Jeff Zucker is stepping down as CNN's president this year. Are you sad to see him go? And what does that mean? And what is his legacy? I am sad to see him go. And then people think that it's like, oh my gosh, Jeff, you're k- kissing up to Jeff. I love Jeff. I'm, and and it's, when I'm done with this, I'm going to go to a lunch and celebrate his birthday with him. That doesn't mean that Jeff and I always agree. Mm-hmm. Quite the opposite. And that's why I love him because I can pick up the phone and say, Jeff, look. And he can yell. And, but I know when he's had enough, when he says, I'm comfortable with my decision, that means he's done. <laughs> um, what is his legacy, do you think? Did he save CNN? I mean, many people yes, think so. He did. He did save CNN. And, and I mean everything I, I said when I don't know who else could run it. I'm sure someone will come along and they will run it and they will do a great job and we'll get, get along well. Or maybe we won't. Who knows? But I, in this moment, I have to be honest. I think the best thing to happen to CNN, in a, you know, besides Ted Turner, was Jeff Sucker. And... Um, Jeff is open, he listens, he gets the news, but more than anything, he understands, I believe, that cable news is about fans. He loves the ratings, but it's also about having fans, people who will fight for you when something goes wrong. And he, the biggest thing for us, is for people who are on the air in front of the camera, is that he has our back. Uh-huh. Interesting. So who should replace him? Maybe a woman, because Brooke Baldwin, one of your fellow anchors who's leaving CNN this month, essentially said that the network is a boys club. I'm going to put you in the man box right now. She pointed <laughs> out the most un, uh, most influential and highly paid anchors there are men. Um, CNN does not have any female anchors in primetime, 8 to 11 slot. Do you see that as an issue? Well, a couple of things. I don't know everybody else's salary, so I can't say that it's a, you know, and it's a boys club. I, look, I just got there. You're not going to get out with the, I just got there thing. No, what do you no, think? but um, what, what, what's your question? What do I think about what? Should a woman be running the network? And how do you square the circle of, of not having, uh, you know, women are just second-class citizens in the CNN universe? Well, I think we have had women who have, um, who have run the network. I mean, Janelle Rodriguez ran uh, part of the network. Uh, my EP is a woman. Anderson is not, it's just Charlie. And, um, Aaron Burnett's executive producer, showrunner, is a woman. So we have plenty of women in positions of power of the network. Now, at the executive ranks, I don't know enough about the, the organizational chart to tell you that. But listen, my CMO is a woman, Allison Gollist, and she is huge influence on the network. So, you know, uh, should the network be run by a woman? Of course, a very qualified woman. I would love to see a woman run the network. So, but you don't it, think it's a boys club, as as Brooke I don't. Said. I don't it, think it's. Yeah, a, you're having lunch with Zucker. I'm guessing she's not. Well, I don't know who's. I mean, I okay. actually called him up and said, "Would you like to have lunch?" I mean, she uh-huh. can do the same thing. 
Fair. <laughs> so, but I mean, I, I I was with Jeff at Brooke's wedding, so I don't, you know, and I'm, listen, Brooke, I love Brooke. She's one of my best friends. So I uh, can we improve? Absolutely. We can improve with diversity among women and among uh, people of color, but um, not terrible. Okay. I think, I think no. on the right track. Okay. I don't really see it as a boys club. Okay. All right. So prediction on CNN's future. What do you see as the future of cable news? Um, well, I see cable news, quite honestly, as more personality-driven than ever before. And I know people don't like that. Mm-hmm. But if, when you have so much information on your devices, people are going to tune into things and people they relate to. And something that that um, inspires some emotion and passion in them. So the individual people like yourself and others who are compelling. I think it's going to be even more personality driven, um, even though people think it's going to go the opposite way. Well, you know, these big shows are going to go away. and blah, blah, blah. No, I think it's going to be that's going to make more room and people are going to want us more. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with Warner Media CEO Jason Kylar, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Don Lemon after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, fueled roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Let's talk about your new book. You wrote that this book was spurred in part by George Floyd's death. Can you talk about that? When I saw the video, I had to go in to close the door into my room and, um, and I just cried. And I said, there was just this thing in me that I had to do something beyond what I do on television every night, because on television, I was just sort of covering it, but yet still getting my feelings out. But it wasn't, you know, it, 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 I was so emotional about it that I couldn't, it was like every moment I wanted to say something. 
Mm-hmm. And, I, and two hours a night, or if there was unrest, even three or four hours a night, it just wasn't enough. And so I sat down and I thought about what, the most, one of, what was the most impactful thing in my life when it came to race, and it was The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And James Baldwin started that book with a letter to his nephew on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation, and he started by saying, you know, we're celebrating freedom 100 years too soon. And I, I thought about that book, and I said, I'm just going to sit down and write a letter to my great-nephew. And I sat down, and I wrote a letter to his, his name is Trashad, and then I have another one who's a little bit younger. His name is Cairo as well. And that's how it all started to pour out, and then that became the book. You've been covering Derek Jobin's uh, trial on your show. So what are your biggest takeaways? Well, that, it's so emotional. And just, I mean, as a, someone who's watching, even if I didn't do what I do every day on television— it would, I mean, it just seems so obvious to me, Kara. I mean, you look at the video and you, and you hear the experts. I, I wasn't, I was kind of surprised that the prosecution put on such a good case and that the really? defense is, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I thought maybe they would rely on the video and just say, oh, here it is, here it is. What do you think? But they're presenting, they're really doing their thing and, and presenting really great expert witnesses, not only expert witnesses, but eyewitnesses. And, and the people who have a connection to the community, like the one young lady who said, I should have done something, even though I, it's not what I should have done, it's what he should have done, meaning Derek Chauvin. I'm just surprised at all the emotion from the trial. On your show, you had George uh, Floyd's cousin, Tara Brown, and Tara Eric Garner's yeah. mom, uh, Gwen Carr. How are you thinking about covering the trial in your show itself? So, I mean, every day we think of what we can do to get people to think about this trial personally, Mm -hmm. because quite frankly, I want people to understand the, to see the humanity in each other, not just in George Floyd, but in each other. But one of the things uh, you write about in the book is in this conflict, as you put it, is putting black corpses on display. What do you feel as your duty as a journalist in doing that? (sighs) I, you know... (sighs) Sometimes I feel like it's a snuff film, right? Like we're watching a snuff film or it's almost like, you know, black death pornography because we keep having to refer to it. I'm looking forward to a day when we don't have to talk about, you know, black people who are dying um, in the streets. So I would, the tug of war that I have is that people need to see it. Right. And you've shown a lot of videos of Floyd's death. And I've shown a lot of videos of it. And just, I mean, we're showing it over and over because that's what's happening. That That's what they're doing in the courtroom. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to, I'm not sure of where the line is between people getting used to it where it's sort of sanitized or where it is shocking because you see it on television. I don't know what that line is. That's something that I struggle with every single day. Well, do you think discomfort is your job? Because that's one of the things of when people become, I mean, people are on the yes. internet, they see these images all the time. It doesn't seem to have as big an effect after a while, of course. Well, and that's the concern. If you stop showing it, then will it just become like, yeah, you know, another that black guy died or George Floyd died or what have you. But um, seeing it was so shocking. And I think that's what made people um, take notice. Not only the fact that we were sitting around during a pandemic with nowhere to go and it's all over your television screens, but I really do think that the George Floyd moment was an inflection point where people said, oh my gosh, what are we doing? So... Um, I think initially we have to show those things, but I think at some point you have to back off and um, not let it become just sort of exploitation of black bodies. Right. Now, one of the things you wrote about is complacency. Talk a little bit about that complacency, because I think that, you know, that is what exactly what happens, especially in this Internet age where we're having photos shoved in our faces almost constantly. Well, that's what's happening now. And I don't know if it's because of the photos or because people don't want to deal with it. They want happiness. 
They want light. They want joy. They want things the way that they were. So I think that's where the complacency comes from. And then if you look at during the height of George Floyd and the protests, you know, there were, if you look at the number of people who thought that he was killed, it was a much higher number. I don't have the exact stats in front of me. These were the polls that asked people if they thought Floyd was murdered by police. And then if you look at it now, it's a much lower number because over time people become, eh, well, I don't know. He must have been doing something. And the video of him dying kind of fades because people want to somehow in their mind justify what happened. So one of the things that you talk about is this idea of not liking to be called racists. And you have a good line in the book about white people's relationship with racism. And you write, uh, quote, white brothers and sisters, pocket that, but I'm not, I'm not racist card. That feels prescient. Uh, Piers Morgan recently said he was disgusted when you accused him of racism. So I know, But you know what? I never, I, but that's all, I've said I wasn't going to respond to the Piers Morgan thing because we know what Piers, I never accused Piers Morgan of being racist. Never. It's not nowhere. If you look at the transcript and you look at, I never did. And so I think that's peers trying to either misunderstanding purposefully or not purposefully or wanting some sort of, you know, to be elevated or some talking point. But I never accused Piers Morgan of being racist. So, but talk about this idea that, but I'm not a racist card. It's an aversion to the racist word, the moniker. Um, tell me about that line. I am offended when people take more offense of the idea that someone may perceive that they're racist than the actual act of racism. And, um, it's, you know, if someone said to me, you know, Don, you're, you're being sexist, mm -hmm. then I don't go, oh, I'm not sexist. I will go, well, well, how am I being sexist? It doesn't mean that my whole being or my whole body is sexist. Maybe I'm doing something or saying something or thought that I have is sexist in the moment. And I, as a dumb man who's lived as a man my entire life, I have been, I've had the privilege of not having to think about things in the way women do. So why would it be offensive to me that someone points something out that I may be unconscious of? That's what I think entitlement is. That's what I think privilege is, is you never having to think about it. And if someone calls it out in you or the possibility that it's in you, that you become so offended yeah. that it just like, and then it becomes about you. It's that's selfish. Yeah. Grievance is a big business these days. Yeah, and it's like, but why are you so offended? Like, well, let's have a discussion. And maybe I can understand rather than, how dare you? Right. So who is the audience then for this book? I kept trying to figure out when I was reading it. The audience is everyone. You're trying to figure out if I'm speaking to black people or white people? I can't tell at different times. <laughs> at different times, I'm speaking to different people. So there are times when I'm speaking to white people. There are times when I'm speaking to black people. But it doesn't mean that because I'm speaking to black people that, uh, that white people can't I can't let them in on it. But when you were conceiving of it, what was, what were, you know, it says it's, you know, what I tell my friends about racism. Well, the conception was like my white friends calling me, asking me about what they do, what to do. How can they, they don't want their kids to grow up in a world like this. They don't have the vocabulary to be able to tell their kids about racism, to explain George Floyd, to explain Ahmaud Arbery or Breonna Taylor. And even my black friend saying, you know, all of these white folks are calling me. What do I say to them? Am I, are we the African-American authorities now? And I would say, yeah, unfortunately we are. You also incorporate memoir and family history throughout the book in different places. For example, you write quite touchingly uh, about your sister Lisa's sudden death in 2018. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the impact of your sister? <sighs> well, um, I didn't... Quite, I didn't even realize how much, I mean, I knew it had affected my life, but I didn't, I had no idea how it still was affecting my life until I had to read it out loud for the audiobook. My sister 
was my big sister. She was my big hero, my big mentor, and she was my protector. And she was, um, she taught me how to drive. She taught me how to dress. She taught me life. And she, you know, taught me how to get through struggles. And um, then all of a sudden, she was no longer there. And um, I didn't understand it. I did, I, I, she went out fishing on a lake behind her house and um, never came home. And when my sister called me to tell me that my older sister had died, my, my sister who's, she's older than me as well, but she's the middle child, to tell me that our sister had died, you know, I sat in my chair and said, I'm going to wake up soon. And then the longer I sat there, I realized I wasn't going to wake up, that it was real. And um, I, that gave me an urgency about life and about, um, about what I was doing as a journalist and my impact on the world um, that I didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So now, Kara, I really don't give a fuck. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, I'm 55 years old. I don't really care what people think about me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do what I think is true and honest. I'm going to tell you how I feel. I'm just going to be me on television and me in life. And because tomorrow I may not be here and someone else will be sitting in this chair. And so while I'm here, I'm going to make have the impact that, that Don Lemon can have and everything else be damned. I know that sounds harsh, but it's the truth. No, no. Uh, when you think about your sister right now, how did she impact your feelings about talking about racism and experience it? What was her contribution in that area? She was much more grounded in that than I was. Even even her being seven years older, she had a, quite a different experience with racism than I did. By the time I came along, my parents were doing well enough to shelter me. Mm-hmm. And, to you know, I went to private school, I went to an all-black Catholic school, elementary and junior high school. My sisters went to public schools, public schools that had just recently been integrated. This was in the um, 60s and 70s. So they had to deal with integration, desegregation, um, you know, kids looking at their hair, asking to touch it, talking about them, calling them the N-word, that sort of thing. And I didn't. I mean, the way, but I had to deal with that in an odd way with black people. And it was about good or bad hair, long and short hair, light skin, dark skin. But it was mostly for kids whose parents had means and they were all black kids. And so I had a different experience growing up. But then once I got to high school, which was, um, had been integrated, I think like 10 years before I got there and becoming the second black class president. And, you know, hearing the N-word openly and that sort of thing from a school that was predominantly white. Um, my sister was like, the, was like Angela Davis, you know, mm-hmm. the fist mm-hmm. up black power and the Afro. Her nickname was actually Cleo for Cleopatra Jones. <laughs> Great movie. <laughs> from the Grand Black Exploitation thing. And so she would wear the, you know, the, the little short fur coat and the Afro and she would dress like Cleopatra Jones. It was, you know, she was like black power Pam Greer. Uh, back in the day. And so I got that from my sister, that sort of devil may care. I'm going to say what I want. I'm going to call it out. And that was what I got from her. One of the things about the book is it's quite optimistic about racism. You talk about love uh, as a fertile ground for change. I have to say, I was like, no. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, it's much, much deeper and much uh, in the DNA. What do you think is necessary for real change in terms of racism? Well, I think it's the answer to what you just said, where you said no, because I am well aware of how deep it is in DNA growing up, you know, this black gay guy from the South. 
But I think that ultimately it's, you have to have relationships with people. And so being someone who's in the middle of an interracial relationship, maybe I'm, maybe I'm a bit too optimistic, but I know what can happen when love takes hold. And even if you're not in a romantic relationship with someone, if you have a true friendship, what can happen? And so I think regardless if it's deeply ingrained in someone, there are people who are willing to change. And there are people who, where love is a bigger part of them than bigotry. And I think that if we act out of love, if we um, start relationships with people who don't look like us, and we're not afraid of or, or grieved by someone calling us racist, then we'll get over those hurdles. So that's why I'm optimistic. Uh, when you also predict in the book uh, that we're experiencing uh, death throes the of death white throes supremacy. of white supremacy, yeah. I think about the stormers of the Capitol Hill. I read a lot on the internet. Maybe I'm spending more time on the internet than you and, and looking at some of the sort of darker sides of it. Um, why did you say death throes? Because a lot of people feel never been stronger, including post-Trump. Because, the, because people are fighting like hell to hang on to their entitlement and their supremacy and um, to be the preeminent voice. I feel like we haven't seen like that since the, the Ku Klux Klan was like storming the South and, you know, running rampant and, 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 and then it stopped. And now we're getting back to that where they're marching in Charlottesville and at the nation's capital. And because they realize that the demographics care of this country, the demographics are changing by 2040, 2045, we're going to be a minority majority country. And when they look at what, what happened in November of 2020 and they see that there are more people who don't want to go back to a time of Jim Crow, who don't want to go back to a time when marginalized people, including women, did not have equity or equality. So I think that even though there was a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump and a lot of people who are out there storming the Capitol and a lot of people are out there marching with tiki torches, there are more people who don't want our country to be that. Okay, last question. Where will we find Don Lemon in 10 years? Eight to ten primetime spot, playing with your kids. Or you could do both at the same oh, time. Oh, well, I'm going to be... Okay, so here's the thing. Don't tell anybody. Okay, you won't. I really love what I do. Um, and I love, I love being on in a time where I have almost complete editorial freedom. Mm -hmm. Maybe I could have that editorial freedom at nine. I'm not sure. But I think at 10 o'clock, I can pretty much say and do whatever I want. And I do. So I think you'll see me... You know, you might see me sort of in doing the same thing, but differently, maybe on my own network. Oh. <laughs> maybe it'll be a Don Lemon subscription network. Um, <laughs> you and Glenn Beck. Me and, no, 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 no. Not, Alex maybe, Jones. No, 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 no. no. But I, honestly, I, you know, I love CNN. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would like to be able to do things um, a little bit differently. I would like not to have it be so connected to politics because I'm really not political, but that's where we are right now. And I would like not to have to talk about issues of race so much because we are dealing with them in a substantial, meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And then you'll see me playing with my kids and probably spending more time on a boat with Tim and our babies and our dogs. Don, I really appreciate it. I'll let you get to lunch with Jeff Zucker. Say hi to him. Tell him he is a chicken shit for not coming on my show. You want me to tell him that? Yes, I want you to tell him directly. Say, yeah. don't use that word. Say, he's been interviewed by me many times before. He said all kinds of crazy stuff to me. And I he should give me his exit interview to Kara Swisher because I know him. I'm going to tell him that. Okay. All right. Thank you, Don. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. 
Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naeem Araza, Blake Nishik, Hiba El Arbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naeem Araza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday with 100% less emotionality than the sob bros of cable news. Thanks for listening. <laughs>